0: Well, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Good. Hey, you know, I've been thinking recently, especially as we get into the holidays, this is something like you just start to be kind of become aware of, is that every family has a culture, don't they? Like every group of people has a kind of a certain code of behavior, whether they realize it or not. We're taught from a very early age how to act, you know, what is appropriate, what's not. And most of the time, a lot of this is totally unconscious. We do most of these things without thinking that, you know, they aren't necessarily scrutinized or thought about, considered for the most part. It's just oftentimes it's the only thing we've ever known because it's the, our family. So what are some of those things, those family practices or those family traditions? What are some of the weird things that your family does that you didn't realize was weird until you moved away? reading an article a few weeks back about family traditions that, you know, some of the strangest family traditions that families have. And again, they don't realize they're strange until they move away. I'll just give you a few of them. They're pretty funny. Uh, One of them was a family who said that their primary Christmas tradition, and I love this. I would actually like to see a family practice this. Uh, One of their primary Christmas traditions is giving Christmas-themed underwear to each other. And so this is how they would practice it is literally the whole extended family would like sit down in this big circle and one by one, each of them would open their present and bring out the, you know, the Christmas themed underwear. And what you were supposed to do, and they said this was just, everybody just knew it and they just did it. The person who opened it would stand up and be like, oh, thank you. They would say, and then they would put the underwear on their head. And they were supposed to remain standing with the underwear on their head until everybody had opened their present. And they said that was just a tradition that had formed. That's what they do every year for Christmas. Now, the question I want to ask is, how did that tradition form? Like, who thought, you know, because somebody thought that idea up the first time. You know, it may have become a tradition eventually, but the first time it was like somebody actually said, hey, do you know what we should do? Bring it out and put it on our head. Another person uh, online talked about how in order to uh, keep their children from watching too much TV or keep them from watching too much TV growing up, their dad always told them, and this is genius, their dad always told them that they only paid for enough TV each week for one hour of TV a day. And so they warned their kids, like, if you watch any more than one hour, we're going to get charged extra. And it said that this went on for years where they only watched one hour of TV a day because they couldn't afford anymore. And it wasn't until they spent a night at a friend's house, and they're literally like watching TV all evening. And of course, they're all like, how rich are you guys? Like, how much TV do you pay for? And and their friends are like, what? And then they realize, our dad has been lying to us the whole time, just so we don't watch too much TV. And then of course, this is my favorite one. This This is the example that I really wanted to give, especially in the time of COVID. One person online wrote that their family growing up didn't use paper napkins, which, you you know, you think like, oh, hey, that's great for the environment. But what they did use instead was actually pretty disgusting. They had one damp dishcloth that they used and passed around the dinner table for everyone to wipe their mouths and hands with. All of them. One dishcloth. (laughs) Like, I, like when I read that, like, my life flashed before my eyes, especially during this time. I'm just, like, we're all, like, so, like, you know, hand-washing conscious that, like, my ha- life flashed before my eyes. When I read that, I'm, like, what may have started as, like, an economic reason, like, probably should have been put to rest a very long time ago for hygiene re- reasons, obviously, chief among them, but also just, like, Creepiness reasons, too. Like, imagine marrying into that family where you're like, uh, Excuse me, could you pass the salt and the dishcloth, too? Like, just, just heebie jeebies. And I'm sure all of our own families have different cultures, different things we do that are, you know, interesting depending on the family. Like, whenever I got married, I learned very quickly what parts of my family were similar to my wife's family and which ones were starkly different. One thing that I noticed right away was uh, the difference in how we celebrated like parties and birthdays and stuff like that. Because like with Lindsay's family, like, they have a party for everything. I mean, it's like every cousin, every uncle, everybody gets together. You know, it's it's like every time we would go out there for anything in the summer or for the holidays, it's like, oh, so-and-so's birthday was last week and this person's birthday's come. We're all gonna get together and have a party together. And so now I've started making fun of them where like anytime I like go to Virginia, I'm like, hey, I found a quarter outside. We should have a party. Like we should get together and celebrate. And of course my family, not so much. Like we just don't really, I mean, I may, we may get together for birthday for like my brother or like my immediate family, my parents or my brother, but like aunts and uncles and cousins, like we might see them at Christmas, but not even so much now. And so that actually has kind of made me wonder, uh, you know, because another thing that I noticed is how each of our families do uh, like greeting cards, you know, for like birthdays or anniversaries or whatever. My, I don't know, is anybody a, a card family here? Like, my family's not a card family at all. Like, I, I mean, okay, unpopular opinion, I think cards are a waste of money. Absolute waste of money. Why would you spend 3 dollars or $4.99 or 5 dollars for something when you could, like, send me a text? Like, it's that easy. But, like, no, Lindsay's family, which I'm not knocking, they're probably getting my... They never watch my messages, but this time I'm sure my mother-in-law is watching this message. So sorry, Marianne. But it's like every everything—our anniversaries, birthdays, Father's Day. It's like they're not—I'm not even their father—and they're sending me, you know, cards on Father's Day, and. And they have, like, these big paragraphs that they write in there. I mean, sweet stuff. Like, we're so glad you're in the family. Like, you're such a blessing to, you know, our whole family. Your your prayer answered for Lindsay and, you know, just all this stuff. Like, I think even on my birthday, like, my father-in-law put, like, I view you like a son. Like, I really do genuinely view you like a son. And I'm just like, don't cry. It's just a card. It's a, it's a way, stupid waste of money making me cry. Now, my family, no, we don't send cards to each other. Like, you're lucky if you get a birthday text. Like, it is your birthday, period. (laughs) Streamer emoji. And, of course, when I started comparing and contrasting our family culture, like, I had a realization, which you guys know this is a big thing for me. I I realized, like, when I'm thinking back and forth, like, how each of them treats stuff like this, I'm like, is my family dead inside? (laughs) Like, I, like, pride myself on, like, my wife's not sentimental, I'm sentimental, but I realized, like, I think my family's dead inside. That's why we don't do any of this. Like, is that not normal to not send cards to each other and to, you know, not get together for celebrations? Like, it's, they're not the weird ones. We're the weird ones. And so it's hard to accept. And so, you know, this is some of the stuff that we're going to be exploring as we're, I'm bringing this series in for, in for a landing. We're finishing out the series we've been doing called First Things First. And the whole series is based off this idea where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God And all these other things will be taken care of as well, that whenever we practice what's called the spiritual discipline of simplicity, meaning we order rightly things in our life, that we put the most important things first, first things first, all these secondary things that we often spend so much anxiety and time worrying about and you know, trying to figure out, when we seek the most important things, oftentimes these other things figure themselves out. And so we've talked about our own faith, how we can simplify our faith, and that how most of the complications we deal with in life are of our own making. And we talked about how we can simplify our stuff. Last week, Jonathan talked about how we can simplify our pace, how we spend our time, which is just man, knocked the the message out of the park. And he was sick while he was doing it too. So I'm like, man, I feel like I should do better when I'm not sick. But So today, if you haven't guessed it yet, we're talking about how we simplify our relationships. How different should our relationships be when we surrender our lives to Jesus? When we begin to order first things first, seek after the kingdom of God, how should that impact the people in our lives What type of family culture is supposed to develop when all of our relationships are supposed to be found under the umbrella of God's kingdom? And so this is what we're going to look at today. And there's a a particular passage I want to look at in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you've read Ephesians before, it's a a fantastic book. I, I, I love the letter of Ephesians. And in many ways, the letter of Ephesians can be divided. It's six chapters long, and it can really be divided into two different parts. The first three chapters and the last three chapters. The first three chapters are all about the gospel. I mean, really, the whole letter is about the gospel, but it's specifically explaining the gospel, the good news. Even while we were in our sins, even while we were considered enemies of God, Christ died for us to reconcile us back to the Father. But then he goes on to say that it doesn't just affect the vertical relationship with God, but it also affects the horizontal relationship with other people. That the gospel tears down walls of hostility between people where there's enmity and anger and unforgiveness that the gospel is supposed to break down those walls. And so he kind of unpacks that in the first 3 chapters. And then so when we get to the second half of the, of the letter of Ephesians, the last 3 chapters are all about the effects of the gospel on our lives. It gets really really practical where he says, "Okay, now that I've explained how the gospel changes literally everything, our relationship with God and our relationship with others, this then is how you're supposed to live." So how different should our relationships look when we begin to live out the gospel? Because we have complicated relationships, right? Is anybody? I'm sure nobody else here has complicated relationships. There's none of you who have troubles with in-laws, a mother-in-law who's maybe too involved in your business, a, a, father who, a father-in-law who, you know, maybe your expectations you can't quite meet, grandparents who maybe gossip about everybody in the neighborhood and are maybe a little bit racist, Or maybe there's a lot of drama with those you work with. People hold grudges. They silently nurse them into long-simmering bitterness. Rather than addressing problems head-on like a healthy person, they make passive-aggressive remarks that hint at a problem, but only in a joking way. I'm just joking. Does any of this sound familiar? See, whether it's family or friends or both, left to ourselves, our relationships are dysfunctional at worst and toxic at best. But see, here's the good news Jesus has come to transform your relationships. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how we can simplify our relationships when we view everything through the lens of the gospel, when we put first things first. So if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 17, where Paul picks up. He says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And I'm going to come back to that. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, these two verses right here are a snapshot of our lives in our relationships, divorced from the life of God. He uses phrases like darkened in our understanding, ignorant because of hardness of heart. See, those phrases explain, especially that phrase hardness of heart, captures the problems that we experience in our relationships. See, one of the key things we need to know that Paul is kind of bringing out in this text is that the harder your heart, the more complicated your relationships. And many of you know that already. You're maybe walking in that right now. The harder your heart, the more complicated your relationships. There is just no other explanation more straightforward than that. Because when my heart is hard, I'm not humble. In fact, I remember reading somewhere that uh, the four most important phrases that you can say in a relationship, and if you are unable or rarely say these four phrases, you might have problems in your relationships, and this is what they are. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I need help. And I don't know. If you struggle with saying any of those phrases in your relationships, you might be struggling with hardness of heart, And that is, in many ways, a succinct picture of just what, even what we're going on, going, what we're dealing with right now. A succinct picture of 2020, hardened hearts and complicated relationships. And then see, Paul says that our hardened hearts lead to a loss of sensitivity. Like, I stopped feeling things. And we see that. There's a loss of empathy, a loss of sorrow, a loss of shame, a loss of conviction, And because I stop feeling things, because I'm human, I want to do anything I can to feel something. And that explains our hookup culture and our addiction problems. Alcohol, drug use, desperate to feel anything. I give myself over to these experiences that are divorced from any meaning or value, and I become addicted to it because I'm addicted to feeling something. And I might even use people to feel good. I use them for personal gain or personal benefit. I think that's what he's talking about when it says we are full of greed. That I start I start viewing people as assets to either meet my needs and make me feel better or feel good about myself. Rather than someone who deserves to be loved simply because they are a human being made in the image of God. This is life apart from God's new family culture that he has sought to establish in Christ. But Paul begins to address this verse 24. He says, that however, now he's writing to the church so I think this applies to everyone in this room who claims to follow Jesus, that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we as a human race are people who are living with all kinds of deceitful desires, wrong attitudes, and the normal thing we do in this world is we try to shape our relationships around those things, right? From a psychological perspective, this is why we develop all sorts of coping mechanisms that we use to manage our relationships, that we do things like we become passive-aggressive, where we say what's wrong without actually saying what's wrong. We project our issues on other people. We gaslight. To gaslight someone means that you make them feel like they're crazy for not viewing things the way that you do. Manipulation, I use subtle turns of phrase and subtle actions to manipulate and coax people into doing what I want. All of these are ways that we deal with our problems in the old family culture of the world, but when we enter God's new family in Jesus, we're invited to put off those ways and begin learning the new culture, the new family ways of the kingdom of God. And see, this is why repentance is so necessary when it comes to salvation, it's not enough for someone to hear the message of Jesus and think, hey, you know what? I need, I need to become a better person. I need to try a little bit harder. I need to, you know, maybe do a few things to try to be a little bit of a better husband or wife or mom or dad or coworker." See, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that you are broken and sinful and can do nothing to fix yourself. That the old self actually has to die. It has to be taken off. And a new self given to you by Jesus has to be put on. I need to repent. I need a renewed mind and a transformed heart. And that can't happen until I'm willing to put off the old self and put on the new. In fact, the language that Paul is using, the, the imagery that is used of putting off the old self and putting on the new, is this like imagery of clothing, like, you have this putrid, filthy clothing that is the old clothing, the old uniform of the world, and you need to take that off and put on the new uniform of the kingdom. You can't put on new clothes until you take the old ones off. In fact, even reading about some of that like clothing imagery that Paul uses made me think about, uh, you know, most of the dumbest things that you do tend to be in junior high, and whenever I was in junior high, I remember one summer, I think this was the summer between my seventh and eighth grade year, I dared, we, I say I, I was part of it, me and several of our friends dared one of our best friends, his name is Lucas, uh, to not change his shorts the entire summer. Like, literally, like the end of May, And he did it till I think, August. It was like right before school started. He wore the same pair of shorts every single day. We even, there was a group of us who went down to Florida that summer to like Universal Studios and stuff like that. He wore them the whole way down, and we rode in a van together. God help us. He swam in them every day in the ocean, and then would just wait for them to dry off and then wear them again. Because, again, we would constantly remind him about the bet. I don't even remember what we bet on it, but he did it. He wanted to see how long he could go. And I'm pretty sure, like, right before the next school year started, like, when he took them off, they, like, walked themselves to the hamper. Like, I mean, they were putrid. They smelled horrible. But for some reason, because, uh, you know, I guess junior hires, we thought it was pretty funny. But see, he had to take those things off eventually. He couldn't just put a new pair of pants on top of them. Believe me, we tried. It didn't work. And so Paul he starts in how our relationships change when we take off our old self and we put on the new way found in Jesus and so he begins to unpack in verse 25 how our relationships should change. He says therefore and of course, when therefore is there, you have to ask why it's therefore, and he's talking about because of the gospel, because our relationship should change, because the gospel changes the, the horizontal as much as it changes the vertical. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, this chapter is just absolutely filled with nuggets of wisdom for how our relationships change as we begin to live out this new family in the gospel. And the first thing that we see, and I've repeated this several times, but man, simple relationships offer simple and plain speech, when we let go of hardness of heart, when we embrace the new way of Jesus that he offers us, that no longer do you have to lie. No longer do you have to manipulate. You don't have to do those things to control people anymore. That Paul, he writes that we need to speak truthfully instead of talking about a situation to, like, manage my image. And we do this all the time, and I'm very aware how I do this, that when you're in a situation that, like, You may say something, well, you know, I did that because whatever, and then I realized nobody asked me why I did that. I'm offering up all these reasons of why I do what I do because I'm wanting to manage my image of people. I want people to think well of me. I don't want them to assume the worst about me, and so I feel like I have to constantly explain and justify my actions when in the community of God, you don't. Instead of me talking around a situation to manage my image or avoid conflict— I can be straightforward, I can speak the truth, but when I do it, I can speak it in love. Or at least that's how Jesus envisioned it. In fact, Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he says, you know, it's like, don't swear on heaven or earth or anything in between. He says the very nature of the kingdom, and this is Matthew 5, 37. He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. No. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I swear on my mother's grave. Give me a holy Bible, I'll swear on it. Jesus says, no, in the kingdom, like imagine this, imagine Adam and Eve before the fall. Things were so simple, so straightforward that we never doubted anybody's intentions. We never assumed the worst about them, that when one person spoke to another, we can hear what they say and say, no, what they just said, they mean it. It's true. I don't have to doubt or wonder or guess at the motive. There's no subtext that I have to figure out. There's no drama that I have to kind of wade my way through. That when they say yes, they mean yes. And when they say no, they mean no. And Jesus said, That is the type of life we're supposed to live now in the kingdom. Subtext and drama is unnecessary. This is how we're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. And see, I think the best friendships, the best relationships, are the ones that I don't have to worry about the other person misunderstanding me. I often find I'm like backtracking and trying to explain and trying to justify because I'm so afraid of being misunderstood, especially in this time in cancel culture, where if you say the one thing just the wrong way that disagrees with the beliefs of the other person you're talking to, that you're done, you're dead to them. They've already pegged you. They've sized you up, and they've written you off. But man, can you imagine having the type of relationships where you don't have to be afraid of being misunderstood? Do you have friends like that? Where I don't have to stumble over my words, or even if I do, they laugh, and they hold up their hand. And what do they say? It's okay. I know what you meant. And do you know why? Because they assume the best about you. See, part of God's new family that he's forming through his kingdom through Jesus is a kingdom of people who assume the best about each other, who are not skeptical of each other, who are not questioning each other's motives. That's what Paul meant in Ephesians 4.29, where he says, unwholesome talk, where he's like, our words should build others up. If your words are tearing people down, it's unwholesome talk. He's not just talking about certain four-letter words that you're not supposed to say. Your talk can be unwholesome, even if it's normal, everyday language. If we're always assuming the worst about each other, of course we're going to feel defensive and feel the need to justify and explain and excuse our words. But when we live in simplicity of speech, you know you don't have to look behind the words for hidden meaning. The person says exactly what they mean and only what they mean, and that is the beauty of the practice of simplicity of speech. People will begin to feel relaxed in your presence, that I don't have to manage my image. I don't have to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. Because i got to be honest, that's exhausting, guys. That's not the kingdom Jesus has called us to live in. That's why things like first dates and job interviews and politics Is so exhausting because the whole time you're wondering about like, I have to present the best optic. I have to present myself in the best light because if I say one thing just the wrong way, boom, I'm gonna get nailed. And Jesus is saying, that is not the way the kingdom's supposed to be. Your heart should have room in this culture, in this family, room to think and edit and understand things, to clarify See, simplicity of speech is so important, especially in the marriage relationship. I cannot stress this enough, how important simplicity of speech for you to say what you mean and mean what you say because, come on, guys, we know. There's a hidden language in marriage, isn't there? There's a hidden language. We say things that actually mean other things, and sorry for all the married couples in in the room, I'm going to let the single people in on some of the secret language, So when they get married, they don't have to spend the first few years learning the language that hopefully they might even be fluent by the time they get into it. I'll give you a few examples of this secret language. Ready for this? No, honey, I'm fine. You know what that means? I'm not fine. I don't want to talk about it, though. Another one. Uh, Didn't you go out with your friends last weekend? That means... You definitely went out with your friends last weekend, and I want to spend time with you now. Another one, hey, sweetie, what are you doing today? That means I've got something for you to do today. (laughs) Another one, I love this one. My wife has used this on me quite a few times. Uh, Let's talk about this some more. What that means is I don't agree with you, but I don't want to embarrass you in front of other people. (laughs) So we're, I'm going to disagree with you later. And then, of course, there's, did you forget anything? That means you definitely forgot something. And then, last one, we should go out this weekend. That means I've already made plans for us to go out this weekend. See, there's a secret language, you guys. You've got to learn it. See, the greatest asset in marriage and really relationships in general is to shoot straight with people. Be direct. Be firm. Be kind. This is what I'm thinking, or this is what I'm feeling, and this is why. And if you don't understand, it's okay. I'll explain it. I'll explain it as often as you need it so that you do understand, because I care about you, and I want you to understand my heart. Because, see, here's the thing Paul said, and I want us to take this seriously, because sometimes we talk about this in a that's kind of outside of the context of what it's actually said— You can grieve the Holy Spirit in how you treat your relationships. We often sometimes talk about that to mean certain things, That not that it can't mean these other things, but when Paul talks about, warns against grieving the Holy Spirit, it is right in the middle of the context about relationships, meaning how you talk to people, how you act toward people, whether you forgive or not, how you deal with your anger, can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so you wonder, why isn't God moving in my family? Why does it feel like God isn't moving in my marriage? Why isn't God moving in these relationships or in this friendship? It's possible, I don't know this for sure, only God can show you that, it's possible you might be grieving the Holy Spirit in that relationship because of the way you're manipulating or the way that you're, pat- you're holding on to bitterness and you're not saying anything, that you can actually grieve the Spirit by how we speak and treat each other. And this is why this next component of simple and healthy relationships is so incredibly important. Paul picks back up verse uh, 31. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ In Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, one thing I feel like I'm learning more and more is that simple relationships mend fences and repair roads. Now, what do I mean by this? Simple relationships don't hold grudges. They don't dwell on the past. They don't stew in anger. They forgive. They give the benefit of the doubt. They give second and third and fourth chances. They show compassion and mercy. Why? Because that is what God has done for you in Christ. A hundred, five hundred, a thousand, a million times over. This is why in Jesus' parables, he makes it clear again and again and again, with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That is a terrifying thought. The measure I use toward other people, that measure will be used on me. See, not surprisingly, our relationship should be modeled on the simplicity and loving and compassionate relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. In fact, I've actually heard it said once like this, that Jesus so intrinsically connects the love of God, like when he's asked what the most important commandment is, he says, love the Lord your God, you know, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, he so intrinsically connects loving God with loving people that, They can't really be separated. In fact, I heard someone say it like this once, that you only love God as much as the person you love the least in this world. You only love God as much as you love least in this world. Like, that is a terrifying thing, that if our relationships on earth really mirror our love for God, that means the person I love least is my benchmark for my my true love for God. Not my professed love. I may say I love God more than anything, but my real love for God is actually shown in how I treat my worst relationship. If you're feeling conviction now, you should, because I do, because I've not always handled relationships well. I'm an avoider, I like to avoid things that God is working on me and I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to be truthful. The kind thing comes easier for me. The truthful thing is a little bit harder. And I know for some of you it's the opposite. It's really easy to speak the truth, but it's hard for you to be kind. And we're growing. We're all growing. We're all trying to move forward. We're all trying to get better. We are all living in as... Early church, Father Augustine said that we are, have all been enrolled in, in the school of love. Those who are in the church have been enrolled in, the, enrolled in the school of love. We're being taught how to love by the Spirit. So forgive. Let go of things. Don't hold grudges. Stop letting that person or that situation live rent-free in your head. We think that forgiveness is for the benefit of the other person, but I think many times the forgiveness is for our own benefit as well. For me to finally say, I am not going to carry that burden for one second longer. I'm going to release it. That's freedom. That I can walk free and not let these things hold me down anymore. I can finally let them go. It's not always just about the other person. And then I'm free to truly love and treat people as they deserve, and that's the power of simplicity. What you see is what you get. No guesswork, no wondering where you stand with someone, because all, ac- all accounts are cleared at the end of the day, every day. I'm not going to let anger, my sun go down on my anger, so at the end of the day, all accounts are cleared. I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm going to release it as the sun goes down to let go of anger, to drop the bitterness, to release forgiveness, because it has been released abundantly to me in Christ. And of course, I could go on and on and on, barely touched into Ephesians 5 and 6. I encourage you, read the rest of Ephesians. It's a fantastic letter. Read the whole thing this week. It's so good. It gives all kinds of practical ways, but I do want to end our time with this one particular verse. Ephesians five fifteen says this. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Man, doesn't it feel like the days are evil right now? We feel that more than ever. The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. See, normally when we quote that, which again, we're all really good at quoting text out of their context, normally when that's talked about, we think of it from an evangelism perspective, which I think it's still true. It does apply to sharing our faith and stuff like that, to make the most of every opportunity, but I honestly think it's in the context of relationships. Make the most of every relationship you have. Because honestly, especially in our culture, that is where life change happens. It's consistent compassionate kindness and love shown to those around you over and over consistently. Not as uh, I have my one opportunity to give you my little spiritual show to try to convince you of something, but to show you the gospel and how I live over and over and over again. Make the most of every opportunity as we're going into Thanksgiving this week and you're spending time with family and friends. Whatever your plans look like this week, make the most of every opportunity. And think about this question as I begin to close out. What are you telling people about God by how you love them? That's how we simplify our relationships. And so I can't think of a better way for us to end our time together today, especially coming up to Thanksgiving, than for us to take the Lord's Supper together. In fact, often, depending on your tradition, you may have grown up in a tradition where the Lord's Supper was called the Eucharist, that's a funny word that usually if you grew up in it, you may, even if you grew up in it, you don't know what it means. Eucharist, uh, it comes from the Greek word eucharista. It means to give thanks because it said on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and the cup and he gave thanks. And so it's a time we give thanks for the gospel. So I think it's appropriate to take it this time of year, especially together as a community. Now another thing that I see in the midst of Taking the Lord's Supper together, the Apostle Paul says that when you take of the bread and when you take of the cup, before you do, examine yourself. Jesus even said himself that if you're offering your gift and you realize I got something against my brother or my brother has something against me, that he actually says, Leave your gift and go be reconciled to your brother. That how you treat your brother is actually more important than the worship that you're offering. Let that blow your mind. Jesus cares more about mended fences and repaired roads than he does about you going through some religious ritual. And so maybe you'll realize as you're examining yourself that there's some bitterness. There's something you need to let go of. There's something you need to ask forgiveness of. You need to get right either with another person or with God. And this is the opportunity for you to do this. So band's going to sing a song, and I want to give you some time to reflect. If you're watching online, and uh, if you want to run real quick to the refrigerator and and get what, you know, some juice or some elements to be able to take communion with us, you're welcome to join us as well in taking the Lord's Supper. And so take this time to examine yourself. I'm going to come back up in a few minutes, and I want you to hold on to the elements because we're going to take it together. I think that's important right now for us to be unified in proclaiming The death and the resurrection of Jesus for us to do it as one body. So hold on to the elements, do your business with God, and then we'll we'll take the Lord's Supper together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, it said that he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then later that evening, it said he took the cup and he said, this is my cup. This cup represents my blood given to you as a new covenant, take and drink. Father, thank you so much for your body, for your blood, that what was accomplished on the cross mended our relationships with you and with other people god help us to live in that to live in simple relationship with you our father and with each other as brothers and sisters god help us to put on the new clothes of this new family that you have begun in jesus and help us to live that out each day as we proclaim the gospel in word and in deed and it's in jesus name we pray